reading tonight is from John chapter 4, 1 through 30. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees heard that Jesus was baptizing and making more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus was wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for, for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks from this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and, and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, in, say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe it me, the time, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then the disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, last fall, uh, a, a lot of uh, media stories broke about sexual harassment and sexual abuse. And a lot of uh, high-profile people were exposed and 
the entertainment world was very much rocked by that. And, and I, I began to wonder, uh, what should the church uh, say about this? Now, on, on the one hand, Karl Barth, the great theologian, said that a, a good preacher will preach with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in another. And, but he didn't live in the 24-hour news cycle. <laughs> so if I always tried to connect with the latest issues in the news, I'd be changing the sermon series every week. So began to pray about it, wondered, well, what's going on here? And then, then a number of you uh, began to share your stories with me. And I began to realize that this was something more than just something happening in Hollywood, but this is something that many of us have experienced. Um, one of you uh, told me about uh, being hired right out of college. I think you were working for a banker. And uh, on the, like the first or second day, he said, would you have sex with me? You said no. Uh, the next day, he sent an assistant, gave you a note, asked the same thing. And the third day, uh, you lost your job. And I've heard that story uh, over and over again. I've spent some time reading the Me Too tweets. Uh, you may know that there's something sadly called Church Too, which is uh, accounts of uh, sexual harassment in the church, which is uh, very, very disturbing. One of you told me the story. You were at a, at a, at a large church. You were serving as uh, the pastor of the arts, and you developed a wonderful, flourishing arts ministry. It grew so much that after three years, the, the, the staff decided, or they decided to make it a full-time staff position. And when you applied, um, you were told that you couldn't apply because you were a woman. And uh, you said, you mean I could do all the work for free, and now that it's paid, I can't, <laughs> I can't do it as a woman. And um, yes. Um, and I think of some of the conversations that Sandy and I had, more when our children were younger and living at home, but this was kind of always something we were trying to work through, was uh, sharing fairly the, the emotional burden of, of the family. And uh, if I look back, I'd say that often I kind of played the career card and did not fully share in that emotional burden. And then I think of a, of a podcast I was listening to by a gifted male teacher. Uh, he really wanted to empower women. He had some profound insights from the Word, and he was expounding them. And then at the end, they opened it up to a Q&A. And um, when he was receiving questions, he was very patronizing. Um, to the women asking questions. And I thought, I wonder how often I've done that. I, in this, in some ways, feels to me like race, in that when I talk to an African-American friend or an Asian friend, the way that they see life, see the world, is just so different than the way that I see it. And I wonder if the same thing is true for gender. And so it seemed like a good time to spend a few study, a few weekends studying some passages where Jesus relates to women. And uh, I've asked Paige Severance, one of our gifted teachers, to co-teach this series with me. And so each week we'll look at a different text, and uh, I'll take a, a little look at it, and she'll take a little look at it. And I, I think our desire is not so much to tell you what you should think about gender, um, this is a profound mystery, and I was telling someone earlier today that I, I feel both hopeful and anxious about this. Um, gender is a deep, deep mystery, and, and I, I don't think we presume to kind of tell you what the Bible says about it. We do want to look at text carefully 
and open up some good conversation. Uh, there's two problems with the method. We'll just name them on the front. These texts aren't just about male-female relations, and so uh, this is a time in, when we'll look at them and we'll ask a particular question, how does Jesus relate to the woman, and we'll, miss, uh, we'll not deal with a lot of the other material. The other methodological problem is that Jesus is God, and so in these interactions, the women end up worshiping him. And as much as the men in the congregation would like that to be the <laughs> paradigm for male-female relationships, uh, that's not where we're going. We're looking more at the, the human side of it. So, well, as Jeremy has already read the text, we won't go through all of it again, but the Holy Land was broken into three parts, uh, Judea in the south, Samaria in the middle, and uh, Galilee in the north. Samaritans were different from uh, Jews in a number of ways, ethnically, their religious beliefs were somewhat different. We're not going to go into that tonight, but the probably the important thing to, to recognize is that they were a much-hated um, ethnic group uh, by the Jews. And so Jesus and his disciples, though, to go to the north, uh, have to walk through Samaria, and they stop and they rest at this well. Now, a rabbi would never ask a woman for a drink. Jesus says, get me a drink. In, in the Greek, it's, I think, a little more uh, subtle. It's not a, so much of a command. It's, you know, could you get me some water? And it's hard for us to, to understand how that would never happen. First, a Jew and a Samaritan would not talk. Uh, secondly, a, uh, a rabbi would never talk to a woman. He wouldn't talk to a Jewish woman. He'd go to the other side of the street to avoid a woman. And this was rooted in their understanding of purity laws. And the idea was is that if, if you interacted with a woman in any way, you might be led to sexual sin. And, and, and of course, the not committing sexual sin is a noble goal. But it reminded me of, of a very delicate issue. And uh, again, this is something I'm going to just kind of raise tonight and not answer. But I know all of us want to protect um, from sexual sin. We all know the problems that happen when, uh, when something like that happens. And so we've set up purity laws like, like they did in the, in the old days to, to guard against it. And when I was in seminary, we had something called the Billy Graham rule. You're probably familiar with that. And Billy Graham is a very godly man. And there had never been any kind of charge against him about anything sexually impure because he said, I will never, uh, I'll never sit down with a woman alone. I won't ride an elevator with a woman alone. I won't eat with a woman alone. I won't meet in my office with a woman alone. I will never be with a woman alone. And there is much to commend about that, and I understand the purpose of it. But, um, and that's kind of the way I started in ministry. And then, and then uh, I don't remember the story exactly, but uh, a woman at one point, I had said something like, I can't meet with you by myself, or I, I need my wife or an associate to meet with you. And she said, do you know what I feel like when you say that? And I said, what? And she said, I, I feel like you think I'm a whore. And I think that's understandable because even though the intention is is pure, the, the it, it leaves the it can leave the woman feeling like there's something wrong with her uh, that I can't I can't be with her because God forbid we'd wind up in bed. And I, and I I I just wonder if that whole sexualized notion of relationship in our culture 
that if a man and a woman have any kind of friendship at all, they'll wind up in bed. I just, I just don't think that's the biblical vision. Uh, it just doesn't have to be that way. We don't have to let Hollywood and Harry Met Sally, um, you know, be our moral cue there. So there is a valid fear, of course, and, and, and I don't want us to be unwise in, in anything like that. But I, I really question whether or not, um, I, I just wonder, as men in the body of Christ, if sometimes we have let fear um, go too far. Because what, what does happen, again, I, I want us to be careful here, but, but what happens if, if we work that out all the way? Well, 50% of the women in our church, actually more, are single. And so if, if the thinking is there's one man that should in any way engage a woman, and that's your husband, well, then that means that half the women in the body of Christ can never be engaged by a man to any extent whatsoever. And yet they were created as image bearers, and they were created to need the masculine. I, I for one, believe there's profound differences between masculine and feminine, and that they complement one another. So I don't know the answer to that. I don't want us to be stupid. But I also think that, that maybe we ought to uh, just kind of step back and wonder if we've allowed the culture to overly sexualize everything. One guy who I just think is a devout saint of a person we were teaching this. We started the Sunday school class this morning and, um, for folks that can't make it at night in this season. And uh, Paige and I taught on this. And um, he basically said, you know, this is one time I can't follow Jesus' example uh, because he, he wasn't sinful. And, uh, and I am. And if I ever engaged a woman like this, it just would be bad. I get where he's coming from, but I, I, I wonder how wise it is to, to just say we can't follow Jesus' example. And I also wonder, and I'm more curious about this, just how afraid men are of women. I mean, this was very much was rooted in the rabbinical way of approaching women was the sphere. But I, I've often had uh, women friends say, I just wish my husband would engage me more. I, I wish, wish he would, you know, press into my heart more, things like that. And I, I wonder, I don't know, but I'm, I, I just wonder if as men sometimes we are terrified of a woman's passions and dreams and uh, maybe even anger so much that we construct ways of relating that um, just makes it certain that we'll never we'll never go there well the next part of the story is a beautiful gospel conversation and uh, if we had more time we would look at it that way it's just so powerful she asks he asks for a drink and he says that what he really offers her is living water, and he begins to call out from her this thirst that she has for the living water of the gospel. And just a couple things that I notice about that interchange there at the well as they're talking about her thirsts. One is that this is not a transactional relationship. She has something he needs. He gets it so that he can move on. He's very interested in her as a whole person. And he's interested in her deepest thirsts, her deepest longings, what, what she wants more than, more than anything in the world. 
He also listens to her. That would have been unthinkable in, in that day as well. And he makes himself vulnerable. He, he asks for a drink of water. Now, he's God. He can do the water thing pretty easily. Uh, but he puts himself in a vulnerable place so that they're more, more equal. Uh, he asks her to meet his need. And then there's this wonderful, beautiful conversation about the gospel in verses 16 all the way down uh, to, to 26, and it's just rich with metaphor and wordplay, and the Lord is just so brilliant as he kind of explains to her what the true gospel is. And the part of it that I've always been curious about is why would you say, I mean, obviously Jesus cares for this woman. Why, right in the middle of the conversation, would he call her out and say, and by the way, you've got um, five husbands and you're not living with them? Uh, first answer, I don't know. Um, second answer, I think he often did miracles to show people he was the Son of God. I think he might have wanted to awaken in her a sense of her own guilt and need of forgiveness. I think he might have done it that way. Here's another uh, thing that I wonder might be going on here. Um, in that culture, a woman had no way to be economically viable apart from a husband. And so I think probably what was happening is she went from man to man until they kicked her out. And in that culture, it was very easy for a man to kick a woman out. He could do it even for burning the toast, and all he had to do was write a piece of paper. And so this is not some sorority girl who's out running around. This is probably, probably a woman who's been sexually abused and thrown away. And one of the ways we wonder if that's true is because she's coming out in the middle of the day. That's not when you go get water in the Middle East. If you've been in the Middle East in the middle of the day, not a good time to go carry a jug of water. You go out early, early in the morning. And the reason why she's there at noon is because she was kind of uh, an outcast in that culture, and she must have felt great, great shame about that. So one of the things that, that I see here is that Jesus not only engages her deepest desires and thirst, but he also engages her shame, her shadow, her weakness. And he doesn't judge, but he offers life. And I I think that's also a picture of what a healthy uh, male-female community can be, is that it's a place where uh, a woman's shame can be gently uh, exposed and healed and brought to the grace of Christ. The last part of the story, the woman, uh, after being overcome by Jesus, goes back to her own people to witness to him. Uh, She becomes, I think, the first missionary in the Gospels, the first apostle to the Samaritans. And so he helps her kind of come into relationship with him and discern her place and calling in the world. And I think that's another thing that a that a godly man can do with a godly woman uh, is, is help her discern her unique response to Jesus and, and how she can live out her calling in the world. Paige? Um, thank you, Doug, for inviting me to be a part of this series. When he uh, approached me about this series, I was aware of the headlines that he mentioned about sexual abuse allegations, but I really wasn't paying that much attention. Um, What I was paying attention to was my own private conversations with friends 
sorry. Um, that echoed similar allegations of being devalued in the church and disrespected. One story was of a, um, a children's minister, and um, she was disrespected in a leadership meeting by her pastor, and she really didn't know what to do. And so not having any women elders in her church, she didn't feel like, feel like she had a voice. And so um, she thought she would have to send a man in her place to speak to her pastor about this. And so these are just kind of echoes of being devalued, unheard. And so what I wondered, the question I began to ask, is, um, is our misguided theology to some degree play a role in devaluing women in the church, in the world, and in our homes? Um, And I believe that it does because I grew up with these misguided messages from behind pulpits of what a woman should be and what a woman should not be and do and not do. And so this series for myself is a, is a journey of healing. Um, and I thank you for making this a safe place to travel. Um, would I rather my healing not to include a microphone? Most certainly. <laughs> but the nature of the messages I grew up with took away my voice, and so God has seen it fit to amplify my voice. And my hope for you is that if there are places in your own life that need healing, that as we sit at the feet of Jesus these next few weeks, that you will learn from his model of relating to women, and that you will hear from him that you are valued and loved and called, gifted, and have a full seat at this table. And so we begin with a Samaritan woman. Um, I'm used to reading text before I talk, so if I happen to dive into the text, please forgive me. Um, um, Sakar was located on the, the slopes of Mount Ebal, and this is where we find Jacob's well and this interaction. And the significance of this is that this was also the place when Joshua entered into the promised land. Um, He gathered all the Israelites together here at this one place, and he renewed the old covenant with them. He did this twice. He did it in Joshua 8 when he entered into the promised land, and then he did it again in Joshua 24 before his death. So this was a renewal of the old covenant location, and this is also where Jesus is renewing or ushering in the new covenant and the place that he chooses to offer living water to the most unexpected person. This is the new covenant. Um, You and I are also invited into this new covenant as co-heirs with Christ. The kingdom that is here now, but not yet fully, actively stands against the ways of the world that marginalizes, divides, and subjugates. And Jesus laid down this, new, this foundation for a new covenant that made any subjugation of class, race, or gender unacceptable. And he demonstrates overthrowing all three of these in this one interaction. Um, as Doug mentioned in verse 7, um, when the Samaritan woman comes to the well and he asks for a drink, her first response is two things. I'm a Samaritan. I am a woman. Two strikes already against her. And Jesus is setting aside powerful social conventions and centuries of hostility 
to ask for a simple drink of water, which doesn't seem like much today, but then it was a huge, huge deal. And in his asking, he's momentarily placing himself beneath this woman, not to demand a drink of water, but to ask. And the Samaritan woman is obviously acutely aware of the differences between her and Jesus, and she's the first to address it. I am a Samaritan and a woman, and in a minute we'll see a third strike against her. But for now, those two were enough to disqualify her from belonging in this conversation with Jesus. Um, Belonging, without exception, is in direct opposition to the ways of the world. Um, The mixed messages I grew up with told me that I belonged to the family of believers, absolutely, because I had trusted Jesus as my personal Savior. But they were quick to add these exceptions. Because I was female, um, I could not lead a man. I could not teach a man. I could not speak in religious services, including prayer or collecting offering um, or teaching adult Sunday school without a husband. And my spiritual gifts were to fall in this zone of hospitality, church nursery, or music, as long as I was not leading that either. And these were all supported with these like cherry-picked Bible verses without much context. These are big exceptions to belonging in the family of God. I'm sure that the Samaritan woman was acutely aware of her exceptions to belonging. And, um, and we see that she has a weak faith. She's not really sure. She, she begins by not addressing him at all, and then she says, sir, you know, she, she slowly, her eyes begin to open throughout the whole interaction, um, and her, her asking is also misdirected. She says, yes, give me this water, but only because I don't really want to bother coming here again, <laughs> make my life a little easier, but she asks, right? She asks, and that's what matters, and in this interaction, Jesus holistically and radically transforms all these complexities of gender and race, class, and this hierarchy, this unspoken way of being, into a simple yet holy interaction of asking and receiving the free gift of salvation. And then we see in verse 16, right after he offers her this living water, he says, go call your husband and come back. And He's initiating conversation, and he's also showing her he knows everything about her, even the fact that she's had five husbands, and the one that she's with now is not her husband. This is her third strike, by the way, and it's a big one. It's as if Jesus draws out from her core every accusation the world might bring against her to prove her unworthy, unfit to receive this gift of salvation. She has nothing to stand on no merit, nothing to offer, not even her marital status could save her. And then Jesus tells the woman, the hour is coming and is happening right now when worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. Verse 23, this is the new covenant in a nutshell. Replacing the old covenant. It's an about face to all these old ways of being, traditions, physical barriers, physical temple, being replaced in the form of Jesus Christ. 
all these ways of being that formerly restricted the Samaritan woman. And perhaps when he, he tells her, go get your husband's, or your husband, maybe he is addressing her sin and drawing attention to her need for grace. But I also wonder, and I don't know, was he pointing out that she did not require a male agent, a headship, to receive the grace he was offering? Jesus knew everything about her and not only accepts her, but he chooses to reveal his messiahship to her. Could he have revealed it in the last chapter to Nicodemus? Absolutely. Could he have revealed it to his disciples? Many opportunities there. But through Jesus, God revealed God's self to an outcast woman. He is her Messiah, the one she was waiting for. I I love that she says, I know that the Messiah is coming, call Christ. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. She was waiting for him, and he intentionally sought her out. What is the model of Jesus and the Samaritan woman? Jesus takes the ultimate outsider exactly where she is in her most mundane moment of life and gives her belonging without exception by respectfully engaging in a theological discussion. And ultimately, he validates her belonging and reinstates her value by offering her the gift of living water. And what is the effect on a woman who meets Jesus and receives the Holy Spirit? This living water wells up and spills over onto her whole village. Through the receiving of the living water, the Holy Spirit gives her spiritual gifting. And I think it's important to realize that her spiritual gifting is not traditional women's work. Um, Her gift was the gift of proclaiming the gospel, evangelism, using her voice, in a time and place um, where women's word was not accepted as a legitimate form of witness in court, she is an effective witness to her community and brings many to Jesus. I read a quote while I was studying for this, and I, I loved it. It's a play on Jesus' word about the, the um, worshiping God in spirit and truth, and it goes, the hour is coming and is now when even women, even sinful women, may be both members and gifted messengers of this king and his kingdom. In my own story of gifting, um, I entered seminary when I was 24 within the denomination of my church, and I was kind of testing the waters to see if I really wanted to stay in seminary. Um, So I took classes part-time and worked full-time, and I loved it. Um, But I quickly realized that if I wanted to continue in the direction that I was going, that I would have to switch schools because the seminary did not accept women in the degree I wanted to go in. So I made the decision to move to Chicago, and I transferred my credits to a seminary that accepted women in their program. And um, while I was in seminary, I'm not joking, the primary question I got was, why are you doing this? You're not going to preach, are you? (laughs) Interpretation. This can't be your gifting because you're a woman. Why are you bothering And I never knew how to answer that question, honestly. Um, I was still, obviously, I still am working. 
uh, through this. And so at the time, my question was like, of course I'm not going to preach. I just really love the Hebrew language. (laughs) That was halfway true. (laughs) Are you waiting for someone to give you permission to follow your calling? To say that you count? That you matter? That you have worth? That you have a voice or a place? Someone's already done that. Jesus. Any one of these reasons could have stopped the Samaritan woman in her tracks. Yet, she leaves her jug, her water jug, to proclaim the good news to her whole village. Isn't that the nature of God's gifting? Our gifting comes from joy in the life that we've been given, and it spills over into our work, our homes, and our community. Now, go. You. Heal, disciple, minister, teach, speak, paint, write, organize, run your business, bake a casserole, catch a baby, serve one another in love. This will be your act of worship. Allow the living water to well up in you and spill over.